So go ahead and grab a Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We are in week three of a series uh, that we're calling Truth Over Trend. And um, in this series, we're looking at different beliefs and ideas, um, values, practices in the, in the, that are very much prevalent in our culture today. And we want to see how they compare to the truth of God's word as revealed in Scripture. And last Sunday, I, I tried to make the case um, for why abortion is wrong and why all unborn human life is sacred to God. And so this morning, I want to go to the opposite side. Instead of talking about the beginning of life, I, I really want to spend some time looking at scriptures to talk about uh, the end of human life. I want to talk about end of life issues, especially, especially as it relates uh, to terminal care. And uh, I know this is kind of an unusual kind of sermon, uh, I get it, uh, but we still uh, need to be prepared uh, for the issues that are raised uh, that come at the end of life. I mean, when you think about it, um, you know, c caring for a loved one who is getting ready to step into eternity is probably one of the most difficult things uh, that we will ever do. And so what I want us to do is really look to the scripture uh, to find the truth of God's word so that we can have comfort and hope and encouragement um, even, even at the end of life, even as we prepare uh, for what we know is inevitable. And so the passage that I want us to look at this morning is found in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and it should be familiar to you because we kicked off the, the entire series with this passage, but, but I want to use it as a launching pad today, and I want to expand on it just a little bit more as we kind of get our minds around embracing really the, the end of life, getting, getting our minds and hearts around accepting the fact that one day we will be uh, stepping into eternity ourselves. And so you remember that the Apostle Paul is writing to his young apprentice, Timothy, uh, his, his young pastor friend, Timothy, and he's really trying to encourage him in pastoral ministry. And I think the point of chapter four to Timothy from Paul is this, I want you to preach the truth. I want you to, I want you to hang on to the truth of God's word, and I want you to share it uh, with your people, uh, regardless of uh, their response, regardless of how they, how they receive it or maybe don't receive it. And he, and he even talks about, if you remember, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that uh, there will be a time when people will not endure sound teaching, that there's going to be a time when people will reject the truth, that there's going to be a time when people embrace myths or trends of the culture as they reject the truth of God's word. And so, and so Paul says to Timothy, I want you to preach the word anyway. I want you to preach the truth anyway. In season, when hearts are receptive and, 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 and are ready to hear and obey God's word, and out of season, when hearts are not that receptive and not ready to obey God's word. So he challenges, challenges them in that. But it's interesting because in the passage that we're going to look at today, we're going we're to read a little bit further, Paul has a very reflective tone. He turns very reflective. As he's, as he's writing this, because he realizes he's near the end of his life. And it's that tone that I really want us to kind of think about uh, this morning. And so I'm going to ask, if you're willing and able, would you please stand together for the reading of God's word this morning, 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 8. So Paul writes this, I, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, 
preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. Obviously, the Apostle Paul is facing the reality of his impending death. He's, he's in prison. He knows that this is the end. I, I think God is preparing for him, preparing his heart and his mind uh, for this eventuality. He knows this is the end of his life. It's the, it's the end of his ministry. And it's, it's interesting how he responds to that set of circumstances. He's like, I'm good with it. He's completely surrendered to whatever God's will has for him, whether that means life and continued ministry or whether that means sure and certain death by execution. It's fascinating to me that he talks about the fact that he is, you know, that he has fought the fight. That life in a, in, a, in a certain sense is a fight, right? We're fighting against the enemy, the world, and the flesh. And he says, I have fought that fight and I've run the race. And so he just talks about, he's just really communicating to us endurance, but, but really in the face of death, he's not fearful, he's not frustrated, and he's not fighting back his circumstances. Because he realizes that God is sovereign over his life and God is sovereign over his death. That God is going to be the one that makes that determination if it's time for him to come home. And his mind and his heart is looking forward to the crown of righteousness that God has waiting for him. And to all who have loved his coming. And so that's really an amazing perspective if you think about it. That he's, he's not anxious about this. He's not worried about this. He's just, he's just laying it out there. This is the reality. I am facing the end of my life. So here's, here's what I want to do this morning and just kind of making some application from that. I want, I want to talk to you about four end-of-life trends that we see in the culture today. Four end-of-life trends. And, and then I, I want to I counter each of those trends with a truth from God's Word. So that we can, we can really see the difference between uh, God's truth and the trends of our culture. So here's the first one. The truth is this, that God is glorified in old age, but the trend in our culture today is to worship youth. Now I understand when, you, when we're talking about terminal care, uh, terminal care um, certainly impacts those who, who are not old or not elderly. So I, I, I understand that. There are situations where young people are facing uh, their own physical illness and they're facing uh, terminal illness. So I get that. But the, obviously the vast majority of 
end-of-life issues have to do with those who've reached old age. So the, really the question is, what is God's perspective on those who are older? And uh, I think we get a great picture of this from Proverbs 16.31. Notice what Solomon says, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. And so there you see, you just ask the question, just, just, just very plainly, what is he saying? What is this proverb saying? And I think the principle of the proverb is this, that there's a special dignity that comes with old age. That there's a nobility that comes with old age. And, uh, and so, and so this, is, this is kind of what he's pointing us to, that this, this dignity and, and this nobility kind of flows out of this, this crown of glory as a result of, of really living a righteous life. Now, let's just be honest about it, because I already know what you're thinking, because I can kind of see it in your faces right now. Um, you know, gray hair is not really a crown of glory in our culture today. Can I get an amen to that? Um, it's really not. It's, it's not really a sign of respect. Um, gray hair is mainly a sign of decline and uh, it kind of means you're over the hill so if you didn't know that um, you know I'm kind of sharing some bad news with you this morning but but that's really how our culture views it and uh, and so we live in a culture that worships youth that extols the the virtues of being youthful and uh, and I understand every culture celebrates youth I, I get that that's that's, that's pretty much universal, but I think in America, it's, it's, it's on a completely different level. Let me, let me try to illustrate. Um, you know, there was an article in a business magazine just about the anti-aging industry in the United States, an $88 billion industry. So you go to Walmart or Target or wherever you go, you go to CVS, you can find entire aisles you know, shelved full of products that have the same thing on them, anti-aging this and anti-aging that. And uh, we see this in advertising and marketing in stores, uh, that promise of finding the fountain of youth, that, that, that promise of eternal life, kind of, if you will, here on earth. And so what's the message of society? The message that's kind of inculcated in that is that getting old is a disease and it needs to be avoided at all costs. So instead of growing in grace and growing in wisdom, um, you know, getting old is really getting a disease that, that, that we need to prevent at all costs. But it's interesting because God sees it in a different way. From God's perspective, gray hair is not a bad thing. And what I think it means practically for you and for me is that we're called to respect those who are older. We're called to respect those who are, who are elderly because God loves them and God sees them as a crown of glory. And so, and so the writer of Proverbs even tags it that this crown of glory is gained you know, in a righteous life. And, and so there's this, there's this sense of as a person walks with God, over many years, that what that does is it brings a, a glory from God, a, a, a goodness, uh, a nobility, a dignity, when somebody has been pursuing God over the long haul, over uh, many years of life, uh, of a life well lived at that. And I think there is something to be said for that. I think, I think probably all of us know someone who has walked with God for decades and decades and decades, and uh, 
and how inspiring it is to interact with them, to hear their stories of faith. You know, it's interesting because, you know, young people, and, and I was obviously the same way, young people are always looking forward to what's going to happen. And they've got hopes and dreams and expectations and, you know, and goals and the whole nine yards. They're always looking forward. But, but when you meet an elderly person, they're, a lot of times they're always looking backward. And they're reflecting over their life that they've lived. And, and, and so many times, and this is, this is a generality, so, so I understand that. But many times you find somebody that has walked with God over, over the course of decades. And what they have are stories of faithfulness of how God has shown up in their life over and over and over again and has blessed them and encouraged them and worked in their life in a huge way. It doesn't mean life is easy. I don't think the scripture is really coming close to communicating that, but I think that there is, there is something to be said for someone whose faith has been tested over the decades and their testimony is God is good. God is good. Life is hard, but God is good. There's just something really about that and I think God is glorified in old age now you know we've we've talked about proverbs before you know that proverbs are not promises Uh, we know that proverbs are just general uh, they're just observations about how life generally works so I don't think the psalmist here in in um, proverbs 1631 is sunshine pumping for us you know we know we know there's challenges to getting older we know it's hard getting older our bodies are not working Uh, we don't remember things you know we 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 don't see as well as we used to see I mean all of those things And, and you can even go to Ecclesiastes 12 and he just lists all the challenges uh facing with with getting old so so the Bible is very realistic about old age but the bottom line church is that God is honored God is glorified uh when when uh, people have followed him and served him their entire life. Here's another truth that we can see today, and that is this, that God calls us to care for the elderly. Now you can see I'm building an argument here. God calls us uh, to, you know, his people to care for the elderly. And sadly, the trend in, in the culture today and again, this is generally speaking, but, but what we see these trends where many people just abandon the elderly and they're left to be forgotten and to be avoided and to be ignored. In fact, there was an article about a, a lady by the name of Adele Gabori. This was in, this was in the Boston Globe and, and, uh, and they were talking about this lady who was in her 70s. She was living in, in Boston and, and, uh, and the article was just talking about, well, you know, it, it couldn't be said about Adele Gabori's neighbors that they were less than responsible. You couldn't say that because when her grass got so high that it was basically waist high, one of her neighbors called somebody and had him come cut the grass. And uh, when her pipes burst in the wintertime and sprung a leak, somebody called the water department and had the water shut off. And then when they finally noticed mail just pouring out of the mailbox on the front porch, somebody called the police. And uh, they did a, a wellness check on Adele. And they walked in and, and they found her skeletal remains. And uh, they believed that she had been, been there three years in, alone in her house. And uh, no one ever checking on her. And uh, in the article, it, it, it talked about um, her next door neighbor 
who really said, gave a, you know, gave a, a comment to the article, and she said, you know, it's just not a very friendly neighborhood, but really the fault of this belongs squarely on me. She said, she, she said Adele was, was, you know, older and, and just lonely, and she would come over to my house at, you know, different times of the day, and she just wanted to talk and talk and talk, and she said, I was working two jobs, and she said, finally, I just got to the place where I just wasn't answering the door when she was knocking on it. And uh, she obviously felt really bad about that. But I think that's an example. That when you lose respect for life, we begin to lose respect for the elderly. And, and I, I know that that's an extreme example. And I know that's not the norm. But there are a lot of people that are just so busy with other priorities that they, that they really don't have time to care uh, for the elderly. Let me, let me just show you this um, from Leviticus 19.32, this is right from the law of God uh, in the Old Testament. And I want you to notice the priority that is set upon God's people to care for the elderly. Uh, the word of God says this, You shall stand before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. I, in other words, I am, I am Yahweh. Now, what I want you to notice about this is that there's a, there's a straight line connection between caring for the elderly and the worship of God. That this is a discipleship issue. This is a worship issue. This is a love issue. This is a kingdom issue. And so, and so when you're worshiping God, it means you love people. And it doesn't matter what their age is. It means you care for people. I, I could have taken you to Isaiah chapter 3 today, where in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is pronouncing the judgment the judgment of God on the nation of Israel. You know why? Because they were mistreating the elderly. Now, there were other things going on there as well, but God calls that out for his people and says, I'm bringing judgment upon a nation because you're not caring uh, for the elderly. And so any law that you see in the Old Testament that carries forth into the new is one you need to pay attention to. And that's exactly what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And again, this is Paul's first letter to Timothy. But I want you to notice what he says on this very topic. He says, he says don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So he's talking about how we are to relate to one another in the family of God as a family. That's what he's describing here. That we love each other as a family. As sisters and brothers, as mothers and fathers, you know, that kind of love should be characterized in his church. But then notice what it says. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. That's interesting. And then to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, how practical is that? I mean, he just lays out three things for us. First of all, he says, we need to be showing godliness to our parents and our grandparents, that this is a Godward act. This is an act of worship. We need to be showing godliness to them by caring for them and loving them and respecting them and then notice what he says and and let them learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return back to their parents and so what he's describing there is as children 
and grandchildren, we need to be reflecting on the contribution of our parents and our grandparents to our lives, the sacrifices that they've made, the 10,000 needs that they met in our lives. And we should have a sense of indebtedness and then return that back with care and love. And then lastly, he says, this is what is pleasing to God, he says. That's what pleases God. So if you want to know what pleases God, loving your elderly parents, loving your grandparents, caring for them really uh, pleases God. So, so that's very interesting and it's really just so counter to what we see so much in the culture today. But here's another truth that I just want to lay out before you. So I'm kind of building on this. You'll notice uh, where I'm going with this. The truth is this, that God has a purpose for every life. God has a purpose for every life. But the trend, tragically, is that many seek to speed up inevitable death. That's the trend that we're seeing, where many people are seeking to speed up inevitable death. Now, what do I mean by this? Let me explain it this way. I think the growing trend towards secularization in, in, a, in the United States today, and it is like a freight train, right? Um, we all see it every day. But this growing trend of secularization is really creating a culture of death in the United States. And, uh, you know, last week I, I, I talked about abortion. And, and uh, in that sermon, I, I didn't even mention one of the biggest reasons why we should be against abortion. And that is because abortion puts us on a very slippery slope morally and ethically. Very slippery. And the slippery slope is this, that if we can justify in our hearts and minds that it's okay to terminate a pregnancy, then there's really nothing stopping us from embracing and justifying wholesale euthanasia. I mean, if we're not willing to care for human life at the beginning, what is it that would make us care for human life at the end? And you see the slippery slope. I mean, what's keeping us from saying that, that somebody that, that's mentally and physically challenged, somebody that's terminally ill, somebody that's elderly, what's keeping us from saying, you know, they should die. Or they should be able to make their, you know, be able to choose to die if they want to. Or how about this? A judge should be able to order that they die. Or a health care committee should be able to make the designation that they die. What's keeping us from that? And that's exactly what the culture of death is doing. And so this trend of embracing euthanasia is called duty to die. And uh, Europe has fully embraced it. And Canada right behind it, and it's coming quickly here. It really is. In fact, in some of my research that I was doing on this, I was reading about what's going on in the Netherlands. And so um, obviously they decades ago they embraced abortion and uh, they legalized euthanasia because that's always the next step that's always the next step they legalized euthanasia in 2001 and then immediately doctors started killing terminally ill uh, patients who were competent and asked to be killed so immediately they started it but it soon moved down the slippery slope. It didn't take long at all because the doctors in the Netherlands started killing those that were neither terminally ill nor competent enough to ask for it. 
And see, these, these folks were diagnosed as unworthy of life. And, uh, and so doctors started going all in on euthanasia. And these were just people that had different physical and, and mental disabilities. I was reading an article by Alan Schliemann. Alan Schliemann is a Christian apologist. He's an author and speaker. He's spoken uh, right here at Stone's a few years ago. And uh, he was talking about that Dutch doctors kill three to four patients a day in the Netherlands. Um, and so when somebody becomes a burden to the healthcare system, when somebody becomes a burden to the taxpayers, when somebody is, is really determined to be a non-contributing member to society, then doctors can write a prescription of death for them in the Netherlands. And so again, these are people that don't, that never asked to be killed. These are people that, that can make their own decisions. And, and just when you think it can't get worse, it does. Because listen to what's going on in the Netherlands as far as the killing of children. Listen to this. Uh, pediatricians are also killing children. At the University Medical Center of Groningen, they kill about 20 disabled newborns each year. And the uh, medical director of the pediatric department, his name is Edward von Hagen, he, he made the following statement, and I quote, he said this, as a doctor, you're trained to save the life of a child, but with these children, the suffering can only be stopped by ending their lives. And it takes courage to do that. Friends, I, I don't think killing a defenseless child takes courage. I think that takes cowardice to do that. And uh, just to share with you, you know, that it's coming to the United States, Washington State and Oregon have already passed laws where it's legal for a physician to, to prescribe a lethal dose of drug to a person who just wants to commit suicide. That's the trend. And that's the slippery slope that we get on. And, uh, and that's why um, all of life is sacred to God, all of life belongs to him and so see the truth is this God has a purpose for every single life God has a purpose for every single life regardless of age regardless of their condition God has a purpose and that purpose has everything to do with his glory it really does in fact what we see in the old and new testaments if, just in case I haven't made this clear enough but but in the old and new testaments 19 different times it tells us we we are not, it commands us, we are not to murder. We are not to shed innocent blood 19 times. And, and then secondly, you know, human life, which is obviously separate and distinct from animal life, but human life is, is really created in the image of God and is a gift from God. So what that means is this, as creator, God owns all of human life. It belongs to him. And God can do with human life as he pleases. Because as humans, we belong to him. Let me, let me just show you this from scripture. First, First Timothy 6.13, Paul says this, he gives life to all things. God does. And then James 4.15, this is an interesting passage. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But we'll only live if the Lord wills. Because He's in charge of our life, and he's in charge of our death. Job 14, 5, Job understood this. Since his days, he's talking about 
you know, men and women, since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, God, you've appointed his limits that he cannot pass. So, so God knows our first day and God knows our last day. And so clearly the Bible teaches that the giving and taking of life is ultimately God's right. And so when it comes to medical issues, it's clear that it's the rights of God that are, that are at stake. And I think it's the rights of God that we have to take a stand for as, as Christians. And we are not to intrude on those rights, what, what God alone has the right to do. And so certainly that means that physicians do not have the right to take away life. That's clearly um, what we see from scripture. In fact, physicians historically have been life givers. They've been life sustainers. They are not life takers. That's what the Hippocratic Oath is all about. It's, a, it's an oath. It's a guide that has been around for centuries and centuries and centuries. And it's interesting because there's a line in the Hippocratic Oath that says this, nor shall any man's entreaty prevail upon me to administer poison to anyone. Neither will I counsel any man to do so. Moreover, I will give no sort of medicine to any pregnant woman with a view to destroy the child. And so what you see there is the Hippocratic Oath is for those, you know, is for babies in the womb and for, for older people outside the womb. Now, I think it's very much in the, in the purview of physicians to do whatever they can, to use whatever medicine that they can or treatments necessary that they can to minimize pain and to minimize suffering. Obviously, that is, that is a gift from God. And so the goal of every physician is to help life not take it away and the reason why is because i come right back to this god has a purpose for every every life and that purpose is to know god and to glorify him as god because he's worthy of uh, our loving him and our glorifying him again I, I give you the example of the apostle paul he's he's writing this in philippians chapter 1 verses 19 through 21 and again he's you know, he's in prison, he's reflecting on the fact that he's, his execution is imminent here. And, uh, and I just, again, I love his perspective about this. He's, he's just okay with whatever God has for him. And he says this, I rejoice, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and then the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. What he's asking for there is he's just praying constantly for the courage to be able to face death so that God is glorified, so that God is honored in how he lives and how he dies. And church, I think that's a great goal for us, that we, that we die well, right? that we die in him, that we die for the glory of God, whatever, whatever that looks like and, and however God chooses to take, take us home. I, I remember, and I've shared this story before, but my mom uh, died of, uh, of cancer 11 years ago. And I remember when she was first diagnosed with cancer, she, she kind of pulled me aside and she said, she said, Scott, you know, is God punishing me uh, for something that I've done, and is that the reason why I have cancer? And I think, you know, all of us have had that question before. 
as we've kind of thought about life. And I, I just looked at my mom and I said, mom, no way. I said, Jesus was punished for you. That's the gospel. Jesus took on the punishment we deserved. And I said, we just live in a fallen, broken world and our bodies are in the process of breaking down. And this is just part of that. And I said, you really have a choice. I said, you can, you can be angry and you can be bitter at the circumstances that God has allowed or you can choose to glorify God in these circumstances. You know, you can, you can choose to be a witness to the doctors and the nurses and your family and, and your friends because of the courage that you have. You can choose to glorify God in the midst of this fight and then you can choose to trust God with whatever outcome he wants, knowing that every day is a gift from him. And she looked at me and she said, Scott, I want to glorify God with this. And you guys, I saw such a transformation occur right in front of my eyes. I saw faith and grace activated in my mom where she had a joy in her life and a love in her life that entire last year of fighting of fighting lung cancer. And I tell you, she was just a tremendous witness uh, for the, the glory and the praise of God. And so I just, I just think that is what God's plan really is for all of us. And you see the Apostle Paul embracing it, and there's gonna be a day when you and I will have to embrace it as well. And, and so um, God will give us the grace to do what we need to do. Now, let me give you one more truth and one more trend. And it's really this one. You know, the, the dignity of human life is really tied to the image of God. This is the entire ballgame right here. This is the entire argument that I'm really trying to make. That the dignity of human life is tied to the fact that we are image bearers of God. The trend in our culture is to say that our value as people is really based on what we can contribute. You know, that what we, can, what we can achieve, what we can accomplish. And it's really called personhood theory. And it's interesting because abortion advocates will concede. They concede that life begins at conception. They concede that. Their argument is that life in the mother's womb is not a person. It's not a real person. It's life, but it's not person according to personhood theory and the reason why it's designated not a person is because according to their thought that they can't contribute anything they can't make a difference in society they they can't relate to people so therefore it's not a person because you see personhood theory according to secular humanism is that we have to do something to demonstrate our value but that's not the gospel See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is you're valuable just because. You're an image bearer of God. That's why you are valuable. And we see this, we talked about it last week, but I want to come back to it. Genesis 1:26. Clearly, we see this from the beginning, uh, from Scripture all the way through. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and every creeping thing uh, that creeps on the earth. So part of our purpose is to rule, to have dominion over the earth, that God rules through us, the earth 
and, and really the universe. So then he doubles down on it again and says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Third time he mentioned it. So as human beings, what makes us unique, what, what gives our life value is the fact that we have the, the very image of God stamped on us. And I think, you know, Bible scholars and commentators and theologians have always defined the image of God as, as morality, as we have an ability to choose right and wrong uh, by the grace, you know, the grace of God. And, and, and then we have a, you know, we have a, a spirituality, we have a, an ability to commune with God by the grace of God. You know, we have a rationality, we, we have this ability to make choices. And, uh, and so that's part of what it really means to you know, to be image bearers, to carry the image of God in us. And that's what gives our life value. Not what we accomplish, not what we acquire, uh, not our affluence, not our fame. That doesn't mean anything. What, what gives people value is that the image of God is stamped right on them and that they are created created into his image and that's that's why all of life and especially human life is sacred to God and it it should reflect that kind of sacredness uh, in our lives in James chapter 3 James mentions this in in a really powerful way he's talking about the power of the tongue and how difficult it is to control what we say and we we've all been there and done that and uh and he and he just talks about this contradiction that we have this tendency, you know, to come to church on a day like today and sing praises to God. But we also have that same tendency to turn right around and curse our neighbor. And I want to read this passage. I want to show, show you why we should never curse our neighbor. This is James 3, 8, and 9. James says this, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. And with it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And, and basically what he's, what he's talking about there is you, you should never curse an image bearer because they belong to God and they reflect him. And I think it's that kind of attitude, that kind of respect that, that should inform and empower how we care for someone near the end of their life. That they are image bearers. We need to see them not as burdens, but as, but as really someone carrying the glory of God as a crown on their gray head. You know, I, was, I, was, uh, I heard the story of this uh, man by the name of Hudson Aberdeen. And uh, Hudson Aberdeen was uh, the longtime president of Wheaton College in Chicago. Wheaton is, you know, one of the best Christian colleges uh, in the United States. And so um, Hudson had a very distinguished career. He, had a, he got his PhD at the University of Chicago. He was a professor of history, and then he was named president of Wheaton College in 1965, and he led it for many, many years and just really put uh, that college on the map uh, academically and, and really just set the tone for it spiritually. So he, um, he was just a tremendous man, but the last two years of his life, he spent in a nursing home. And uh, just sitting in a chair, kind of with his mouth open. And he didn't really know who he was, and he didn't know where he was. And that was how he spent his last two years. And you think about someone as accomplished as he was, and, and the leader, the Christian leader that he was, and, and you ask the question, you know, really, what's the value of his life in a nursing home? 
Like what's, how can God be glorified in that? What's the value of his life? And, and the answer to that is infinite value. Infinite value. Because he's an image bearer of God. Even, even in a nursing home, right? And uh, that crown, that crown of gray head it reflects really the glory of God. And so, and so he's of infinite value. Of infinite worth in the mind and in the heart of God. And then I know you ask, you say, well, why does God allow this to happen? Why doesn't God just take them sooner? I mean, why does somebody have to go through this? And I, honestly, church, I don't know the answer to that. I don't have the answer to that, but I know that God does. And I know that his plans are better than my plans and his ways are higher than, than my ways. What I do know is that someone in that difficult of a circumstance really points us to the fact that the best is yet to come and that, that we live in a fallen world and that one day God's gonna lift the curse and there's gonna be a new heaven and new earth. That's, that's what I know. And so, and so all of this really leads to making decisions for our family members, for our loved ones uh, that, that really see them as image bearers of God. Now let me, let me just kind of close the message out because I want to get really practical with you uh, and just give you some implications of just some end of life issues. So, um, so if you haven't gotten the message so far, let me, let me try to make it clear um, even more clearly. I think, I think one implication is this, uh, physician-assisted suicide is always wrong. Always. Period. It's always wrong. It cannot be reconciled with Scripture. It just can't. We don't have the authority to determine when someone's life should be ended. That rests in God alone. The second thing that I would say is this. This would be a second implication. There's a time to fight, and then there's a time to let go. There's a time to fight where you get all the treatment you can and do all that you can to live, you know, to be healthy and, and to find healing. But, but there's also a time to let go and we're going to need the wisdom to know the difference between the two. We'll need the wisdom of God to know the difference between the two. And I've known a lot of people who've battled cancer, they battled heart issues, they battled all kinds of physical ailments and did all that they could do to prolong their lives and, and bring healing to their lives. But over time, it really became clear that there was nothing else that really could be done medically for them. And that the, that the, the treatment, the, the complications of the treatment going forward were gonna be more horrendous than, than anything else. And I've seen and been with those folks who said, I'm gonna stop treatment. I'm gonna stop treatment. And I think, that's, I think that's godly. I think that even that honors God. Now, obviously, it's different if you're younger and you're just starting a treatment kind of process and you're already giving up. I mean, I don't think that, that honors God. But, but I think there is a time to fight. And then I think there is a time to let go. And we need really the wisdom of God to know the difference when we should, you know, transition to, you know, comfort care or palliative care, um, you know, and that kind of thing. And I think the same thing goes, church, uh, for do not resuscitate orders as well. I think um, those orders can be appropriate um, when, when you know death is imminent, 
right? When, you're, when your body is so broken down, I, I think it's, it's appropriate to have those orders uh, put in place of do not resuscitate. So again, how do you know the difference? Like, how would we make this decision? Well, you need to do it with prayer. You need to do it with the word of God. You need to do it with your pastors and your elders, right? This is what we talk about family all the time. We talk about the family of God. This is what the family of God is there to help you through. Third, I would say this, that you should prepare a living will. Uh, You should exercise a a medical power of attorney. You need to be seeking God's wisdom. Now, obviously, a last will and testament is going to tell your family what to do with all of your assets, but but a living will is going to focus on health care and your health care preferences uh, when, when you are still alive. And so you need to talk about those things. You need to have a plan. For, and, I, and I know this is morbid. I, I get it. I understand. I'm, I'm killing the energy in the room even now as I speak. But, um, but I want you to be prepared. And you need to be talking through those things. And here's the last implication, and I'll end with this. And this is the most important one. You need to make sure that you prepare yourself and others, your family members, to meet God after death. Because that's what's going to happen. And we need to be evangelists. We need to be about the business of evangelizing our family members and friends. If we're not sure of their faith, we're not sure that they, that they know God, that they walk with him. Church, there's no other preparation more important than that. Because we're going to step into eternity and we're going to step right into the presence of God. And what you want and what I want for my family and for your family is for that to be a glorious time for them. Where they're looking, they're looking forward to it in joy. I, I, remember, I remember my dad was having open heart surgery. This was when I was in seminary. And he was having open heart surgery in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, of course he was... He was anxious about it like, like all of us probably would be. And, and so I said, hey, Dad, I'll, I'll be glad to spend the night in the room with you. And, uh, you know, because uh, I'll just be there for you. And, and, uh, and so I did. And, and so he couldn't sleep that night. And, and uh, we got, you know, we were just talking late at night. And I remember asking him, I said, Dad, are you ready? Are you ready to die in case this doesn't go well? And he said, I'm not sure. And I said, Dad, would you like to be sure? And he said, yes. And I shared the gospel with him. And, uh, and I said, Dad, would you, would you like to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And he said, I absolutely do. And so I got to lead him to Christ right, right in the hospital room, right, um, I don't know, 1 a.m. in the morning. And uh, just made a total difference knowing that no matter what the future brought, that he was ready to step into eternity. And so we need to make sure our family members are ready to step into eternity and I think really the biggest question is this are you ready to step into eternity are you ready do you know that Hebrews 9 27 says it like this and just as as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time. We, we sang about that a little bit earlier. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Here's the question, church. 
Are you saved? Do you know your sins are forgiven? Because the essence of the gospel is this. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that the essence of the gospel is that the wages of sin is death. It brings separation from God, spiritual separation from God. Jesus Christ died to bring us to God. That's the third part of the gospel, that he died on the cross for you and for me. He embraced his death. He knew the plan of the Father was for him to suffer on the cross in shame and humiliation for our sins. And that's exactly what he did. And he took our place. He paid our penalty so that if we would come to him in faith and come to him in repentance, we could know his salvation. And that's the message of the gospel. And that is the greatest way that you can prepare for the end of life on this planet. And I just want to encourage you. I want to give you an invitation today. If you've not taken that step, take it today. There's nothing more important than that. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, <clears throat> we acknowledge today that we're talking about heavy matters. But I thank you that you, you care about these matters. I thank you that there is, there is not only living grace for us when we live, but there's also dying grace for when we die. And I pray that, that you would help us to have these conversations. I pray that, that you would help us to think about our impending death our inevitable death, like the Apostle Paul, like we're just trusting in the will of God. We, we trust our Savior that if he can cover our past and he can take care of us in the present, then the future is a piece of cake. So God, I pray that you would give us faith for that. And I pray that you would, you would fill us with love for other people, regardless of their age and that we would walk in care and community with them. And so God, I just give you praise and thanks for all of this. Thank you that you died so that we could go forward to live. And I pray that we would do that in your joy and in your power today. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen and amen.